21 in our study. A few more weeks uh, in Luke, and then, uh, of course, we always celebrate Advent for the four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas, and uh, our theme this year is going to be Isaiah 9-6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. We look forward to that. Lighting of candles, hanging of our banners, and involving you in those prayers and, and, uh, and statements uh, as we celebrate Christmas. It's always a fun... We got the snow, so now we're ready, right? We're ready for, ready for the uh, Christmas season. Let's read our section, and then we'll uh, kind of introduce it and tell you where we're going today. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for, the, for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. <clears throat> Technological advancements are wonderful, aren't they? I think the most wonderful thing is that when I'm waiting to pick up one of the kids from school or work, I can watch Andy Griffith on my phone. I mean, amazing. If you'd have told me when I was 17 years old, uh, maybe it wasn't that old, I was 13 or 14 years old, and I put the boombox next to the TV to record Gilligan's Island so I could listen to it on my Walkman on the school bus. And then you tell me, hey, in 20 years, you can watch anything. Any I mean, it's just amazing. But with those advancements come threats and dangers, right? Are you tired of the LifeLock commercial? Are you on the dark web? I mean, I'm freaked out. I might be on the dark web, you know, get a free scan. Is someone out there pretending to be you? I, seriously, almost every break, uh, you know, on, on the commercial, it, that is a commercial. Are you exposed? Are you protected? By our service. Only $600 a month, and you'll never have to worry again. <laughs> if I'm on the dark web, I'm out there, okay? I don't even know what the dark web is, but I might be there. I don't know. I might be exposed. But to me, it's not a very deep threat. Now, I say all that to say, Luke 12 is really about threats. Jesus is, is like the commercial warning us about the dangers. Luke 11 is all filled with hostility, right? It's the buildup of hostility towards Christ as he is explaining uh, his ministry and the people just begin to become more and more hostile to him to the end of chapter 11 when they begin to then want to trap him and even eventually they're going to want to kill him. In verse 1 of chapter 12, we dealt with this last week, Jesus gives the warning. He says, beware, end of verse 1, of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That hypocrisy is a threat to people who want to follow Jesus. And the reason hypocrisy is a threat, because if we don't continually express to God, and in some cases to others, our secret sins, it may be revealing to us that we really don't know Christ because what we are doing is making up 
a show or pretending to be something that in reality we're not and will one day be exposed as such. Jesus says that is a warning. It can creep in like yeast imperceptibly and it can powerfully affect your entire life. So be warned. Now the second threat begins in verse, the passage that we read, but it begins when he says in verse 15, excuse me just for a second, <coughs> when he says in verse 15, take care, and then he says, be on guard. So there's really two terms here. The second, be on guard, is a military term, which is requiring constant vigilance. So this is, this is like the LifeLock commercial. Okay? This is, it's much more serious, though, because the threat isn't to pos- is not to possessions, it's to our own soul. So he says, beware, take care, be on guard, this time against covetousness. So the two dangers, after all this hostility, now he's warning, he's speaking to his disciples, you'll see that, he said to them, verse 15, these are people who wish to follow him, the two dangers for followers of Christ is pretense and possessions. Pretense, we talked about that last week, a person who claims to be a believer should constantly be examining themselves for signs of hypocrisy. Secret sins that they cherish and do not confess, which as I just said, which may reveal a lack of a true commitment to Christ. Today, the warning is about possessions. A person who claims to be a believer should examine themselves for signs of greed. That's what covetousness means there. We'll talk more about it later. Greed, a desire to find fulfillment in things and possessions. This word covetousness comes from two Greek words. This is fascinating. Greek, I, d- I don't know it real well, but when I use my uh, Greek study helps, it, it reveals these things to me. That The Greek word for covetousness comes from two words. The word for to have and the word for more. That's what covetous means. To have, desire, more. Here's what it really, it, it, it's connected to the love of money or hoarding It's the longing of a creature that wants to fill itself with lower objects of nature rather than God, right? God wants to be the satisfaction and joy and life for those who follow him, but instead I want to fill it with other things, the lower objects of nature, money that perishes, the scripture says. So pretense... And possessions. And maybe you say, come on, is this really a danger? Are things and greediness really a danger to people who call themselves Christians? Like, you can understand hypocrisy, right? A person who's phony and carries the big Bible and writes all the notes and is, is constantly, you know, putting, you know, putting out the nativity scene. And, you know, but they really don't have a, a, a real relationship with Christ. We understand that. But possessions? Come on. Listen to what 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 say. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now this is key. It is through, this is scripture, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now you tell me, is it a danger? Warn those who are rich. And again, say this very clearly, it is not money that is the root of all evil. It is the what? The love of money. It is that have more concept, right? 
no one's going to say, you know, empty your wallets and purses before you leave, and if you're, if you're rich, you're in sin. That's not what Scripture says. It is this desire. It is, here's what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. It is through this craving that some wander away from their faith, almost like zombies, right? Here's, here's faith. Here's joy. Here's security. Here's salvation. Here's eternal life. But here's money, right? And they wander away from their faith. They're, they're tempted. They fall into dangerous ruins, and they pierce themselves with many pangs. Now, my thought on this was this. What kind of, what kind of wealth and temptation and possessions issues were there for Timothy in first century uh, life? I mean, really? Was this a, were, were people just clamoring to be, I mean, there's no CNBC and stock market uh, checkups. I mean, but so, so I'm thinking if this really was a, a danger, which it was, because Paul's making it clear this is, this is a, a, a scary temptation for those who desire to be rich, then how much more applicable is it today to American wealth? Think about it. Uh, we live in such an affluent, materialistic, yet unsatisfied society, right? You'll start to get the Black Friday coupon soon. People trampling themselves for a Tickle Me Elmo doll, right? Or whatever it will be this year. I gotta have, I, I mean, I, I only have a 36-inch screen TV. And for only $700 more, I can have a 42-inch big screen TV. And so I'm going to trample old people to get that on Black Friday. Right? We have everything affluent, materialistic. Even the poorest of people in America are the richest of people through history and around the world. This, the idea that things and money bring security and pleasure, we talk about it often when the Mega Millions reaches 100 billion. I mean, who could even comprehend that number? So I asked the lady at the gas station, are you buying a Mega Millions? Oh, yeah, I already bought mine. Okay. Uh, then I saw her the next week. Oh, you didn't win. No, I didn't. Yeah. And we've heard the stories about how even the winning of the lotto does not bring that satisfaction. What I love is watching, you ever watch the old game show channel? It's way up the dial. You see the old game shows from the 1970s with the shag carpet and the spinning sets. And they're like, here's what you could win. It's a 1972 Frigidaire. And it's like green and, and the living room set. And the people are like, ah. You know, where's that now? It's probably in that dump by the palace. You know, like it, it, it's thrown away. It's garbage now. Even these people on these game shows, you're going to win $5,000. Oh, they're, they're just like over the moon. And it did not bring the satisfaction that they desire. I heard, <laughs> I heard the comedian sharing the story once about, you bring this product home. You buy this new product, whatever it is, and it occupies a place of high uh, importance in your home. It's on the kitchen counter. And you open the box and you, and you read the instructions and you fill out the card to join the group of people that also bought this product and receive other bonuses and you look at the product. And then it goes into a cupboard after a little while. And you, you decided you weren't going to make frittatas as much as you thought you might. And, and uh, then, it, then you buy some other product and it makes its way to the garage, right? And now it's getting done. And, and, and I think the comedian says, very rarely does anything ever return from the garage into the house. And then, and then the ultimate of dissatisfaction, a storage unit where we go and we place things that we can't even fit into our homes. I mean, if you have one of these, I'm not, we've used one before when we've moved and sometimes there's appropriate, but we, we can't even, we don't even have all the space in our home for these gadgets and things we buy. Now we, we put them in a storage unit where they're locked up in, in a rusty old 
<laughs> you know, garage door you can't get open. I mean, we don't even have space for all our things. But we constantly, I'm, I'm guilty of this too, we constantly desire more. I only have the iPhone XI. I've got to get the next one when it comes out to be happy and satisfied. According to Paul, this love and this desire for stuff causes people to leave their faith. So this is a real threat. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Look, some people, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing it, some people look at the things that are transient but the, thing, the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Everything we see will pass away. Oh, we got these brand new chairs for the church. Remember you had to sleep in the church, wait for the delivery guy to bring them over there? And look at this. There's holes in these two right here. They're all kind of getting worn out. They were only six years old. Things wear away. And we need possessions to live, that's not the point, but it's the love and the desire for more and more and more. Now, the Bible considers those who cherish transient things as foolish. Those who cherish, cherish transient things are foolish. So in the story of the rich fool, which we used to have in the house as a little arch book, we had these little Bible story books that were kind of like cartoons, and they were called, I think they were called arch books. And this one freaked me out because the guy gets killed in the story, right? The rich, the rich fool dies. And I didn't like, I didn't like reading that one. Um, it, it's a very tragic parable, is it not? I mean, it, it's a profound thing. So let's walk through it. Four things. There's a statement, there's a warning, there's a story, and then there's an application. That's where we're going to go. There's a statement... There's a warning, there's a story, and then there's an application. That's how we're going to move. Number one, a statement. At first I put question, and then I re-looked at the passage. This is not a question that a man brings to Jesus. It is a demand. This is how the whole point is introduced, okay? Verse 13, someone in the crowd, remember there's thousands of people now surrounding Jesus. You can look back to 12, uh, I believe it's 12 verse 1 that shares that. Thousands, some, I, I think I said last week, it could even be in the tens of thousands. People gathered around, and this guy, someone in that crowd, someone in that, in that scene says, teacher, here's the demand, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now think about the context here for just a second. What has Jesus been talking about? Look back up 12, 1 to 12. I wrote down just a list. He's been talking about hypocrisy. He's been talking about eventual, eventually being exposed before God as who we really are. He's talked about don't fear people who can kill you, but fear the person who can throw you in hell. We're talking about hell. He's talking about being disavowed before the heavenly courtroom by Christ. Remember that? Uh, when you if you deny me, I will deny you before the angels of God. He's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are some weighty serious things and what's on this dude's mind money money i mean christ is bringing the weighty eternal subject matters to bear on this crowd's mind and you can almost imagine this guy saying i wish he'd shut up so i can get my statement in there and then my statement is that my brother won't share with me right and he doesn't, even, he doesn't even ask a question. He just says, tell me, tell him to share with me. What a foolish demand when you think of all that he could have said or asked at this moment. How can I be sure I won't be denied? 
How can I be sure I will avoid hell? How can I be sure to have the indwelling Holy Spirit? And the idea that, that I take into our society is how difficult it is for people, even Christians, to engage their minds, even in a 40-minute discussion like this, on spiritual and weighty matters, and when the service ends, we got to talk about something temporal. Immediately when it's over, we got to talk about Wolverines, or we got to talk about the weather, or we got to talk about something that is so meaningless in comparison, right? You know, we cannot engage ourselves in Scripture, but we can, with rapt attention, binge watch the latest whatever for hours and hours and hours. This is kind of the mindset of transient people. They're constantly thinking about temporal things, and they cannot raise their eyes to eternal subjects because they're not interested in that. The greed of this man, demanding that Jesus tell him, give me what's mine. We don't have many details here. Is this the older brother? Is the younger brother? We don't know. But what is revealed in this story is a person who has a temporal, material, selfish heart and focus. And Jesus says, man, you know, what is that? That's, that's kind of a harsh term. It's used in the Bible in a harsh way, in a gentle way. I think it's a harsh way here. Man, who made me the judge? It, it, sounds, like, it sounds like Jesus is really upset with this individual, and he is. I am not going to judge this. I, I'm here for more important matters, and that's when he goes to the warning. And he takes what this man has brought up, this demand about the inheritance, and uses it as an opportunity to teach followers of Christ that this spirit is a, what did I start with? What did I start with today? LifeLock. This, this spirit in this man is a threat. This is a threat. This is a danger. If you come with this kind of spirit of wanting more, you are in danger of missing what I'm really here to offer. And over what? This is going to be in a landfill someday. And people line up and camp out at Best Buy to get their supplies and things. I mean, so here's the warning, number two. This person sets Jesus' course of discussion, and he gives this warning. I already said it's a military word. It's watchfulness. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. I mean, Scripture tells us that. We're also aware of that by experience. Greed is a threat and a danger. Why? Jesus states it in verse number 15. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. This is not a, this is not a trivial thing. It's a serious threat. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, do we need things to live? Of course we do. Is it wrong to own a phone? Is it wrong to own a big screen TV? Is it wrong to own a car? Right? We, we, we need possessions to live. So what does Jesus mean when he says one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions? This is where we get help, helpful information from those who really understand the Greek language. There's several words for the word life in Greek, and the word that Jesus has used here is critical for our understanding. One of the words for life is bios, and you almost hear that like in biology. It just means physical existence. It just means the idea of having life, physical existence, physical life. The word that, that's not the word Jesus uses here. So he doesn't say physical life doesn't consist with owning things, because physical life, you need things. But what he uses is the word zoe, and this is a word in the Greek that means what makes our life 
worth living. Like, you know, you have, you have uh, quantitative life, qualitative life, and going along with that is what brings satisfaction to life? What brings meaning? What brings purpose? What brings enjoyment? What brings fulfillment? And what Jesus is saying is that life, that satisfaction, fulfillment, that joy, that, that, uh, that uh, satisfaction you're looking for is not found in stuff. No matter how much there is, right? No matter how much there is. Like, I've seen, I've seen videos on athletes' homes. I mean, it's insane. You know, this is, this is my... This is my theater, right? I mean, actual theater. This is my, this is my shoe room. Or, you know, what I mean, some random thing like, you know, here's my indoor pool. Again, there's nothing wrong with things and having things, but it's almost like over the top, wow. But all that stuff, I mean, how many millions does it take? You know, you, you, you look at sports stars or celebrities, or they, you know, I'm, a, I'm an actor. I can read words that someone else printed for me and repeat them in a, in a way that looks like I'm really doing it, right? <laughs> and they're going to give me $25 million to, to act in this movie. Well, how many millions of dollars? And, and still, the sati- Jesus is saying that will not bring the satisfaction. What type of life brings satisfaction, meaning, purpose, enjoyment, and fulfillment? The only type of life that can bring that is eternal life, which is provided not by possessions. Possessions cannot produce eternal life. In fact, possessions, Jesus is saying, is a barrier to that. Jesus is telling this guy, you are heading in the wrong direction. Actually, he's turning to his disciples. This guy's just kind of listening in now. He says to them, what this guy is doing is wrong. He's going down the wrong direction. He will never find fulfillment and satisfaction. Let's say I told him to give half of whatever. I told his brother to divide it, and he did. It's still not going to bring that life, that life that he is desiring, the life that satisfies and fulfills. How is it possible that we think we could find life in things that we use and things that we consume? Some would actually argue that possessions actually enslave us. And they eat us up. John 14, 6. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life. John 17, 3 says, This is life eternal, that they know me. Life is to know Jesus and then to live for him. That is the life that brings satisfaction and meaning. That's why Jesus says in Scripture, No one can serve God and money. He will become a slave to one and he will resist the other. Possessions is a threat, and to enhance and enforce his story or his point, he gives the story. So here we are at number three. So the demand brings up the point that Jesus is making, and that is that eternal life and satisfying life and fulfilling life doesn't come through things, and now I'm going to share a story to help you see that. And that's where he tells the story of this rich fool. Let's read it one more time, just because the scripture is so, the most important thing we do is read it. 16, the end of 16 parable the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself what shall i do i have nowhere to store my crops he said i will do this i'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and i will store all my grain and my goods i'll say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years relax eat drink and be merry god said to him fool this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared whose will they be now again Let's start by saying what is not wrong of this guy. It is not wrong to be a businessman. It is not wrong 
to achieve and be successful and make money. There's nothing, Jesus is not indicting the man for that. It's not wrong to be a good steward and build bigger barns to hold the things that you own. That's not wrong. So why does the Lord cause, call him a fool? What was it that caused him to make that judgment? Off the top of my head and through the study, i got four things. So four things that this man is identified with, and these are the dangers for us to avoid. First thing is ingratitude. This man was ungrateful. Is there a job that is more reliant on outside forces for success than farming? You know, my dad farmed on the side when he was also working as an accountant. And I don't know why we had these magazines around, or uh, we did, but they were successful farming magazines. Remember those? And when I wasn't listening to Gilligan's Island on the bus, I would take these successful mar farming magazines, and I'd read a couple on the bus. I don't know why. I don't, I don't know what I was trying to be, a successful farmer. But how does a person become a successful farmer? What is a pr I mean, obviously, there's you read the almanac, and you study the, the times, the best time to plant. But, but, but really, your, your success is all up to the Lord. If he doesn't send the rain, if he doesn't send the sun, you're a... You can write the failing farming magazine. Yes, there's effort and work and so forth. But what is, look at what verse 16 says. Easy to run over this, right? Easy to run over this. What does verse 16 say? Where do you, what do you see there? The land produced. See that? Is it verse 16? Did I get the right verse? Yeah, the land of a rich man produced. And he's not grateful. Do we see the man showing thanks? Do we see the man taking a portion of his offering unto the Lord? Those who are greedy and covetous are focused on temporal things and get this, they think they are responsible for their own success. And in that, they ignore and forget God. I have achieved. Look what I have done. They ignore and forget God. Secondly, the man is selfish. If you just look through there, you count the I's and the me's and the my's. I counted 12. 12 I, I mean, it's very clear, isn't it? I mean, he's talking to himself about himself. This is one of the funniest. I, I, I love this verse in Scripture. He says, and he said to his soul, soul? Like he's, he's talking to himself about himself, and, and the, the, the thing he doesn't realize is the Lord is listening in to this conversation. But look at it. I will build my barns. I will do this. I, 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 me, me, my. He's, that's all he's thinking about is himself. There is no focus on others. There is no thought of sharing, only hoarding. There is no thought of the needy. Augustine on this story says this, his grain would have been safer in bellies than in barns. He says if he had, this is Augustine, if he had stowed it away in the bellies of the poor, it may have been digested in earth, but in heaven it would have been kept safely. Invested, right? Shared with the needy. Not safe in his barns. Third, he's, he's ungrateful, he's selfish, now he's indulgent. I'm going to sit back and Relax. And I'm going to, what does he say? I'm going to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He's going to lean on his wealth and indulge himself in pleasure. And then fourth, he's presumptuous. He says he's going to do this for how long? See verse 19? Many years. He's presumptuous. He thinks he's immortal. Consider James 4 when it says, do not say that today or tomorrow you're going to go do this or go there and go buy, brain, buy or get gain. Then it says, you must say, if the Lord wills. You have to involve the Lord in this, if, if the Lord allows. There's nothing wrong with planning, being a good steward, and that sort of thing. It's not, you know, laying up for retirement is not wrong. That's not what the scripture is saying. But it's the idea of, I'm going to do this or whatever, and I'm not going to consider God or think about him at all. 
He almost feels like he's immortal. Many years, this is what I'm going to do for many years. I'm just going to indulge myself, not share with anybody. Look what I've done. Ungrateful, selfish, indulgent, and presumptuous. The bottom line of this conclusion here is that God's opinion of this man is that he is a fool. He didn't thank God for his crops. He didn't offer gifts in return to God. He did not share with others as God's word and will demands. He didn't plan on investing it for God, only for himself. And maybe worst of all, he didn't realize that God as his judge would eventually call him to account. What's going to happen to all that stuff now that you've accumulated, the parable says? Whose will they be? You go to an estate sale? I think we were just talking about this Wednesday night. You ever think that's weird? Like you're looking through people's clothes. I mean, it, it, you know, they're gone. You're just like, oh, that's a nice suit, and I wish I had that plant. And all their stuff is just picked over. Or everything you have in your house right now is someday going to be picked over by other people. And your kids are going to have to drag it to goodwill. And all that you've achieved, what good will that be? Not that it's wrong to do that, but the overemphasis on things rather than investing in people and thinking about the Lord. This passage, I, I was just reading, I think I was reading J.C. Ryle late last night, like I do, I get it done, and then I read, and then I, so I had to add this, where it says uh, in verse 20, if you look at that, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required. Another interesting word, that's a bank word. It's a word that means like a person calling back a loan. Isn't that something? Like what, what is being implied here? That this man's life was on loan from God, and now God's calling in the payment. You, your soul is required. That what a fool. He did not invest at all. And of course, the the ultimate conclusion is that he's separated from God forever. What's the application in all this? Let's bring it to a close. What's the application? Jesus, as a master teacher, doesn't just tell a story to, oh, that's a very interesting story, to either scare or provoke, but there's an application, and it's in verse 21. You are like this, he's saying, so is the one. You could be like this. If you lay up treasure for yourself, bad, and is not rich towards God, being rich towards God would be good. Some lay up treasures for themselves. They only live for things and for pleasures. And they will, like this man, be left out when it comes to enjoying the pleasures from knowing God. Are we stingy? Do we struggle with giving? Worship and giving is a portion of this, giving our tithes and offerings to the Lord, but also being giving in other ways. The real question that I have is this. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Because that's the point of the story. The point of the story is that we ought not be laying up treasure for ourselves, but being rich towards God. So I got help on this. One author in the book on Luke says this, I am rich towards God, three things. A, when his glory is my highest goal. B, when his worship is my deepest joy. C, when his fellowship is my greatest satisfaction. That's being rich towards God. When glorifying him is my greatest goal. When worshiping him brings me the greatest joy and fellowshipping with him brings me the greatest satisfaction. Not all this other stuff, not things. When we offer our abilities to his work without holding back, when we give 
and serve people in need, when we give our first portion of all that God has given us to Christian ministry. Another author says, we can always enlarge our savings and build huge accounts, kind of like this guy. I got to open it up another bank account. I got so much money. We can plan our retirement so we have nothing to do but change positions in the sun, he says. We can live as if all that exists is this life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and in God's eyes, we are fools. I was reading, I'll close with this, and here's a, here's a uh, contrast to the rich guy. Is, uh, this pastor was, I, I don't, I don't, he was, he was on a cruise, I think, and giving a, giving sermons from time to time, and the guy came up to him, had been recently been saved, and said to him, I, you know, I'm in my early 60s, I've made money all my life, and I've spent it on myself, and I want to give a huge gift to the ministry. Oh, okay. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, just incredible gift. Are you sure you want to do that? So, oh, yes, I, I, wa I want to do this. I want The Lord has blessed me. I've just recently been saved. A couple days later, on the same cruise, the guy had a heart attack. And within weeks, he was dead. Whose investment, right? Who proved they were rich towards God and who proved they were a greedy, hoarding, temporal-thinking, materialistic person? That's why it's a danger and a threat for us to think that our life consists of the abundance of our possessions. We can either be greedy or we can be givers. So don't let that threat challenge you. Be people who are thinking about eternal things. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this reminder tonight and just overwhelmed at our own materialism. I am, Father, the desire for things and the trusting in a bank statement and the confidence we have uh, in possessions. Please, God, help us to recognize this threat and to be givers, to be generous, to be rich towards you, to find our joy in your fellowship and our, our goal to glorify you to others and not be as this fool to work and invest and save and hoard and then spend it all on ourselves only to find that that life is wasted and that soul is condemned. Father, help us to hang on to our things loosely and to use all that you give us for you, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A final song this morning is in your...